Rob Rafferty, welcome to What Really Matters. It is really good to have you. Thanks, Russell. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. Big fan of your your work. And obviously, uh, we should be up front with the audience. We're friends and collaborators. We, we have a history. It's going to be a fun conversation. Yes, we have been collaborating for a long time on film, more or less on film. Uh, is there anything else we've collaborated on? I guess as it relates to film, story, structure, you know, I guess, uh, but yeah, entirely film. Let's just stay in, in that, in that world. Yes. Screenwriting, filmmaking, storytelling. Yes. Uh, that sort of stuff. And it's always nice to go back to the origin story a little while, because sometimes I have to remind myself, my, my partner introduced me to you. Yes, uh, that's right. Because I was, I was working on this pilot show called District Land, and you know, it was about young people in D.C., and she said, you know who you should talk to? Rob Rafferty, because you had made a, a similar show. And what happened was we got beers somewhere. Was it on Capitol Hill or somewhere like that? I want to say it was a Chinese or Thai, Thai place that you recommended, but I don't, yeah. remember, I don't remember the name of it. But um, Yeah, and you know, we, we talked for a couple hours, and I think we've been collaborating ever since then. And, and so how long ago was that? Five, six years? Easily, yes. Uh, and I so, was, yeah, it was cool, man. So, so here's what's happened since then. You could say that our creative output has slowed. Would that be fair? <laughs> it's like it's bursts, you know. Like I think a lot of activity, and you know, if you throw in seven K films as a, just an experiment, I was you know working with you a little bit on that, not directly, but I mean, we both had struggles and challenges, and um, you know, the realities of life that prevent us from doing this sort of stuff full time. But we've managed to be okay. I, I don't want to say we've completely slacked off there's been some good it's been ups and downs though for sure it, it does come in bursts maybe you want to talk about that but i i want to the the immediate thing that thought to to that you sent me and then i thought you know i should just chat with rob for this podcast was this email that you sent me <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the email you you know you're talking about a couple of things but at one point you just say fuck man i'm just tired of not flexing my creative muscles anymore and I'm getting fucking old. Time is running out. I'm 43, but I sense this looming dread about life being over. It follows me everywhere. Uh, so it's all right. I mean, I feel a sense of looming dread and have since I was probably 25. And that's why I do creative work in the first place. So maybe you could, here's, here's my first question for you. Okay. Why did you start doing creative work, you know, above and beyond whatever your, your day job happened to be. What, how old were you and what was going through your mind back then? Wow. So I'm looking back and I, I think about this sometimes. When did this all start? When did I have these interests? And I think uh, growing up in rural West Virginia most of my life, I didn't have a lot of access to the type of equipment or technology. By the way, it's the 80s. Uh, so that even makes it, you know, further out of reach, you know, the pre-digital era, two channels of television with rabbit ears, that sort of world that I lived in, um, you know, filmmaking was a pipe dream, not even on the radar of a sort of thing I could do with my life. I had to be more practical, but I did have some interest in photography, took some, you know, 4-H camp classes, developed my own film, that sort of thing. 
but mostly, you know, just went to college, went to law school, pursued what was a more traditional steady uh, life. Uh, but then it's like the early 2000s. I distinctly remember this sort of, you know, digital revolution finally reaching the masses and the form of a sort of prosumer video camera, a Canon ZR90 or something of that sort, which at the time I think was like 450 or $500. Not an insignificant amount of money even today, honestly. There was a big uh, chunk of change back though in the, in the early 2000s. But I'm like, yeah, I could, I could buy a video camera. I can get some desktop software, get these mini DV tapes, teach myself how to do this, you know? And like, it was just about that time. I just kind of picked it up, you know, DI, what's it called? DYI style, uh, jump right in, have fun making some little short films. This is even pre YouTube. So the, the problem there was still the, still the constraint of sharing it with people. So I would like burn DVDs of these little short, goofy comedy clips that I would make in my, in my apartment or in my office after hours and screen them with friends, have some drinks and people really liked it. Uh, so I just was incentivized to do more, you know, and I kind of wanted to nurture that interest. So how old were you when, so when you started making this stuff? It's probably in my mid to late twenties. I want to say 27 is when so it really started to take off. Yeah. It was the technology, basically the technology became accessible. There you go. And, that's right. That's absolutely the, that was definitely the catalyst. There was no other way I could be doing it. I, I should also give a little shout out to the Arling, this thing called Arlington independent media, which was conveniently right down the street from me. It's sort of like, um, you know, a public access cable station. It's very sophisticated though, in terms of their capabilities. They have training classes, very low cost for Arlington County residents, public access stuff. Uh, I took some courses there that really helped sh- sort of introduce me to the, this, uh, how to use the technology more effectively. That's you started getting the lighting and audio and the more, I would say complicated aspects of production, but Arlington yeah. independent media is a great organization. I've been in their, I guess their studio before. Um, when my, when my first short film went to the film festival that they, they helped co-host. Yeah. Rosebud. I, uh, that was something I always wanted to, you know, I viewed as a, a goal. Can I screen at Rosebud someday? But I, <laughs> I haven't cracked the code on that yet. But. Oh, I screened at Rosebud. It was wow. so, <laughs> but I haven't been back since that first uh, first film. Actually, I haven't submitted first since that first film. But I like Rosebud. Rosebud is for local filmmakers in the DMV, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Yeah, it's a good event. So when so you were making this stuff, the technology was accessible to you. What? Why were you like? What was your idea of success? back then what, what where did you think this was all going were you going to go to la i mean what, you know, what, what did you have in mind definitely uh, more constrained geographically you know more or less happy with my life and work and not uh you know the sort of person who is a sort of frustrated artist by any stretch i was just a happy artist doing things dabbling and having fun with it on the side um, but it did get more time consuming and more serious and I started to entertain like fantasies of, wow, you know, maybe I could actually produce and, and uh, you know, write and produce or, or direct something awesome. And I guess what I initially looked to as validation was like, uh, well, two things would be like, you know, I'm thinking here mid 2000s, later in 2000s, there used to be a site, I think it still exists, but it might be now supplanted by some other uh, rivals. It, it's called Without a Box. 
this is a website that has this whole universe of film festivals all across the world. It's like, wow, if I could just get into some film festivals, that would be an amazing accomplishment, right? Because that would suggest that someone other than a friend or family member watched something I made and, and selected it uh, to be seen. I apologize for my dog barking there in the background. Uh, we did turn our phones off before we started this podcast. I can't turn my dogs off. Hopefully uh, the audience will forgive us. They'll forgive us. But um, yeah, so, so film festivals where I started to apply and get rejected in, in droves to those variants. I didn't know what I was doing. I was submitting to like Sundance and South by Southwest. Like, come on, man. And looking back, it was just a complete waste. Um, the stuff I was making was not uh, at all the sort of thing they would, I'm sure they would screen. I did, well, I did break down. I broke into DC shorts. I'll talk about that in a sec. That was a huge moment for me though. But um Anyway, I was yeah. going to ask you, you know, if you started off applying to Sundance, you must have, like, what were you thinking? Were you, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that with love, what, you know, what were you thinking exactly? Well, like, okay, I guess maybe I should, let, let me, let me be, let me like think about it. It wasn't necessarily, was it, was it Sundance? Was I more realistic about that? It might've been like South by, um, still they were ones, they were major ones, right? They were, they were, I was like, well, if I could get in there, that's going to be my, sort of springboard to some something else and i could sort of prove to people that i do have what it takes uh, so, so festivals were one route the other thing though that i really enjoyed was uh the sort of contest space it still exists for sure but it was it was very vibrant in the late 2000s and even in like the early you know, 2011 2012 you could submit like tv commercial ideas or things like that and the fun thing about these contests is they had really you know tight deadlines that would help incentivize your production. Like, Hey, I want to submit to the Doritos Super Bowl, Super Bowl commercial. I got to hit this deadline. It forced you to, you know, make, to make something. Of course, I never won any of those contests. That was, but it was a, it was a motivational, you know, uh, factor, I guess. So I, I, I was like, you and I made this movie together called humbled. And it's sort of about this topic. It's, I think it's sort of about where, where do we get our validation from? And, you know, sort of struggling filmmakers, I think they all go through that the same phase that you went through, which is like, you know, I'm going to get into some festivals. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get into festivals. And I, I, I did the same thing. I thought I'm going to go get into some festivals. And then I got into the, some festivals and, you know, there's parties and there's a theater and people watch your movie and you get to do a Q and a people listen to you talk about your creative work. That is a rush, dude. I'm telling yeah. you what, I mean, the, uh, so I screened at DC shorts, my, what was actually, here's how, here's how fun I am though. This is, this is what I like to do. I, I, I said, I submitted a contest entry to, it was FX and MySpace when that was a thing <laughs> they were, it was, um, I want to say it was like always sunny in Philadelphia sitcom pilot contest, you know, up to 10 minutes, submit your idea for a show and, and maybe we'll fund it. And you could actually get on FX. You know, I was like, wow, I have a great idea. It's going to be like, you know, uh, hijinks on Capitol Hill. We'll call it Hill Rats. You know, I'd worked in the Hill for a little bit. I thought it's kind of a fun environment to have that sort of character driven, goofy, zany comedy, kind of like a, you know, Veep. Veep on the Hill, low budget, less quality. I don't know. How, whatever, anyway, I, I made the thing with friends. With, with, to- without Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Yes, right, you. right. No, yeah. Talent was 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 a, was a, was a, was a constraint. Um, so 
but but it, it it was fun. I really enjoyed making it. Uh, I think it's it holds up on some margin of like for someone who has very little knowledge and experience what they're doing. I'm you know I was pretty proud of what I was able to come up with there, and it was a great memory that's the sort of folks I work with to pull it off. But didn't get in. I, and actually, what here's a, here's a like one of my first like raw lessons in life uh, as a as an artist, I guess, and a filmmaker. I, not only did I not advance in the FX contest, I can accept that there were probably hundreds of entries. The ultimate winner of that contest had Andy Dick in their pilot. <laughs> yeah. I was all like, what are you doing, man? It's like, that's not fair. So anyway, I, but I repackaged that, uh, that uh, entry and said, it to, said, I don't know, on a whim almost, I somehow saw DC shorts, probably on without a box. Like, oh, man, I'll send it to DC shorts. And I really am excited to, about, what, you know, I got the email, hey, you're in. Actually, it was a phone call. I remember it was a phone call. Rob Rafferty, we want to screen your your your, your short at, in our festival. I was blown away, like wow! And that was incredibly validating. It was as you said, the parties, watching it on a big screen, talking about it afterwards. That was fun for me, and also enlightening because I was in a screening set with you know six or seven other films. They were all much much more uh, polished, well produced, certainly well funded. And they were going down asking, how, how much did you spend on this project? And I mean, some of these people were tens of thousands of dollars. And, uh, you know, they got to me, I'm like, eh, it was about 50 bucks and a case of beer. Yep. And I felt a little bit like an outsider. Some of the people were like, yeah, this guy shouldn't be here. On the other hand, it, it kind of incentivized me, encouraged me to continue. And I got to know the festival director, who I think you also probably know, John Gann. He's no longer yep. directing, but he was just an enormous, like, he just encouraged me. He said, man, that you're a local filmmaker. We want to, you know, profile you show your showcase your work, do more of this. You have talent. That was a real kind of, I don't know. It was a small moment where I was like, yeah, I, I should keep doing this, you know? Yeah. The festivals for me were the ultimate ego boost and, you know, they were encouraging, but I think I came to believe that they were giving me sort of false encouragement or, you know, they were boosting my ego without boosting my professional success in any way. Yeah. The Oak Leafs or whatever those things are, they look nice when you put them on like uh, your website and you can yeah. sometimes see like, Oh, some of these films that get into like 50 festivals. And of course, a lot of them are more like regional or local festivals and that's fine. You're right. What's the relationship between getting into those and right. and making right. a, a jump to a more sort of commercially viable career? It's probably not great, except for some of the, you know, maybe there's a five to 10 top notch festivals that could have a real game changing effect on your career potentially. Right. But they don't usually let in, you know, there's festivals that basically invite filmmakers to submit yeah. and, you know, they almost pre-select the slate. And then there are the festivals, which are even fewer and far between that actually do open up some number of slots in their slate to complete unknowns. Yeah. I don't want to shoot on the festival circuit too much because I think it's a good, it can, it does motivate a lot of people to give a, give it a shot yeah. Um, and well, the one know, thing they did for me was, you know, I did meet people at the festival yeah, absolutely. that I ended up working with in the future. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I didn't, I never went to film school never took any film school classes. So going to the festivals and meeting other filmmakers in that way was, I think, incredibly important for me because 
I just, I didn't know anyone yeah, or, or how to go find them. I didn't have a, a network of people, but there's, as I, as I figured out that these things were sort of boosting my ego without boosting my career, I came across, I think, a, I think this was an, on a script notes podcast, which is about screenwriting. It's hosted by these two uh, successful Hollywood screenwriters, John August and Craig Mazin. Do you listen to that? I have listened to a lot of it. I'm not a like a podcast. This is a funny thing. I'm on a, a podcast. I'm going to listen to yours all the time. Every episode, Russell, I promise. Yours is the best. Craig, Craig, Craig Mazin makes the same joke. So Craig Mazin created uh, Chernobyl. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he makes the same joke. He doesn't listen to podcasts ever, you know, either. And he is basically on the most famous screenwriting podcast in the U.S. He, he co-hosts it. Yeah, I'm aware. He, he, I'm he aware. never listens to podcasts. But anyway, I came across this little factoid about, you know, and they were talking about the difficulty of uh, becoming a professional athlete versus the difficulty of becoming a working Hollywood screenwriter. And the numbers were similar, you know, tens of thousands of people in high school are playing football, hoping that maybe one day they make it to the NFL and only a tiny fraction of those get to go to play college football. And only a tiny, tiny fraction of those get drafted in the NFL. And we're talking like 0.0 percentage of the total universe of aspiring professional athletes ever become a professional athlete. And it's the same with screenwriting with one major difference, which is that if you don't make it as a professional athlete, you know that you haven't made it. You didn't get drafted. You got cut from the team you know, it's over. You need to go find a different career. You've been sorted. (laughs) You've been sorted. And it's clear to you, you've been sorted. It's clear to your family. It's clear to your friends. And it's clear to the gatekeepers. Right. And none of that is true. Not just in screenwriting, but none of that is true in creative work generally. It's not true if you're, you know, an aspiring novelist. It's not true if you're an aspiring, you know, visual artist, poet, Name your creative field. In fact, in some ways, the opposite is true. Your family and your friends encourage you. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like you're. This is really great. You know, I love you. Keep going. You have talent. You know, I know my grandmother's going to listen to this, and she's so encouraging, and and it's been really great throughout my life. But it's always a danger with creative work where it's like you're getting encouragement from your inner circle of close friends and family, but nothing's happening for you. No one's listening. No one's watching. No one's reading. But I wonder how do you deal, how do you deal with that, Rob? How do you deal with, you know, not ever knowing whether it's going to work? There is no sorting process in this. How do you, how do you think about that? Oh man. That's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, yeah, man. I think um, what I will say here is that there's a bit, there's a bit of a difference between art and, and uh, physical prowess and say, you know, like you, you describe professional athletes and such in, in that, I think there is a general trajectory you have to adhere to, to be a successful professional athlete with rare exception. If you don't start when you're super young 
devote enormous amounts of time and energy and effort to perfecting your abilities at a super young age. You have to start young. I don't think many professional. I mean, this is a, you know, there's going to be these outliers occasionally. Oh, this guy didn't start playing basketball until he was a junior in high school. And then suddenly he's, you know, yeah. but mostly it's like, you've got to start super young, got to be intensely de- dedicated, uh, thousands of hours, uh, of preparation, learning, in addition to just genetic ability and talent, innate talent. And then there's a peak and there's a moment where you can't, you can't do it after that. I mean, again, no one starts, again, rare exceptions. There's always like a Disney movie of the guy who mm-hmm. decides he wants to. Yeah. The rookie with, the uh, rookie with, with <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, Dennis well, Quaid. Dennis Quaid. Becomes that's right. And that's somewhat, I guess it's, a, it's based on a true story. That's, but that's just, that's just so rare. So, uh, it's just impossible. So I guess I have this fantasy that that's not necessarily as true. This analogy doesn't hold up exactly the same way. If I, if I believe that it did, I probably would stop doing what I'm doing. I actually believe that um, if I continue to work at it, even uh, on the side as it is now, it's more than a hobby. I have a business, I have a company, I have an LLC. I'm familiar with the tax benefits of this stuff. I mean, I, I have made a little, and by that I mean a you know trivial amount of money. But it's like you know, it's 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 not entirely a consumption good. It's largely a consumption good. But I can see, I can envision a world in a number of years. But I can envision a world where I could potentially be generating some type of revenue or income or and or receiving some type of critical praise or feedback that suggests that what I'm doing is good or interesting or worthwhile to others beyond myself. Um, and I think that it can happen. People can come to this later in life. And by the way, like it's true for writers and artists and of all kinds. Sometimes I, you know, I, you know, I completely agree, but that that's almost reinforces my point, which is, <laughs> you know, know. Hey, I mean, the world of creative talent you know, of geniuses is littered with with creatives who produced their work of towering genius in their forties or their fifties or or whatever it is, and they were unknown or completely unknown until then. Yeah. And us creatives grasp onto those stories, mm-hmm. you know, with with hope. And it can happen for me, even though you know my fiftieth birthday is you know next week. It can still happen for me. Um, it will never happen if you, if you don't do it. That's the other thing. And so yeah. in a sense, in a sense, that's the only, that's, that's the, the, the counter argument. Okay. I could stop doing this. There's no real purpose. There's no real chance. And actually I'll be realistic. I'll say I can continue doing what I do and I don't suspect I'll ever achieve a level of notoriety or accomplishment that 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 uh, justifies the amount of time and effort and money and energy that I put into it if that was what I was looking for so there must be if you go back from if you t- work backwards i guess and this is yeah i can say yes i do this mostly for self expression fulfillment my own enrichment and satisfaction uh that's probably what the real motive is at this point in my life and maybe maybe even when I, maybe it wasn't that when i first started maybe when i first started in my late mid 20s like oh in some crazy world, I could pick up and just leave everything and go to LA and become a full-time, you know, producer or something. There's, there's, that's probably, I'm pretty certain that's, that's not the case, but uh, anymore. 
but I still do it and it's fun. And yeah, <clears throat> I had to turn on that sort of intrinsic interior motivation in order to, in order to feel good about it. Because I mean, I made a short film that it was okay, but it got into some, it got into Rosebud and it got into some other festivals and, you know, and I got that ego boost, but I knew the film was just okay. And then I made the feature with you, Humble, and I, I think, you know, I really like it. I actually watched it again. I, I think it's a good movie. I think it's well written. You know, it has good themes. It talks about important stuff. I think some of the actors in it are fantastic. And it didn't get any attention, really. You know, I'm proud of that film. Uh, I will say, it was largely anything that was good about it was largely your passion and effort. I was a contributor and supporter. I don't think I was um, instrumental in in the production for sure. But I, but in terms of the story, it's so smart. And actually, yeah, I <laughs> looking back at it, you're a thoughtful guy. This is what I value about your friendship. You, and you've, you've said to me like, Rob, what do you think about what you're trying to say? What is your theme? What is your message? These are, you, you press me and challenge me to, to think more deeply about the, the reasons why I do things and what I'm trying to communicate in my work, probably in ways that I, I hadn't thought previously. So I thought Humboldt yeah. was super, uh, very complex, very interesting. People. I've shared it with people. They've enjoyed it. But yeah, I would say to, also it's true. I didn't probably do as much as I could have to help promote that. We didn't have a real well, strategic plan to push it out there. And, you know, but the, the example of that movie is, is part of what I'm talking about, which is to say, you know, it didn't get into major festivals. It did, you know, it made us a handful of dollars uh, when we released it on Amazon you know, I, probably not that many people watched it, but I am still really proud of it and I still love it and I'm still really glad I made it. And that to me points, it just, it's a lesson to me that I succeeded in the intrinsic goal that I set out to accomplish with that, which was to direct a feature film that I like and wanted to see myself. You beat yeah. me, and I haven't done that yet. So you beat me, <laughs> and no, 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 have a lot of people. This is the thing. Also, man, the critics, I love it. Oh, like <laughs> your film sucks, or I will, only, I will never watch that piece of trash. Whatever, they'll never make or produce or create anything themselves. I, I that's why we're superior. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sorry, but I just like uh, I, you have to go. You always have to fall back on that. That's why, by the way. I'm not ever that critical of anything that anybody creates, especially in film. It's so hard. It's a miracle that any complete film project ever comes together. You know that from experience. It's really exciting to see that, even if it's not aesthetically pleasing or the best, most compelling story, characters, etc. Well, it happened. Someone saw it through. Good for them. So who am I, who am I to judge and say that's not good? I'll, the, the most I'll ever say is it's not for me or I didn't, you know, didn't register resonate with me, but I mean, I haven't made a feature film yet myself. I've contributed to to humble. That's the longest one I've ever been involved in, but that's a, that's kind of a bucket list thing for me. Let's like, you know, get out there and do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do you feel like, uh, do you feel like you are writing when you're coming up with your stories First of all, how do you decide what to work on? And related to that, do you 
do you, I guess this is the question you were just saying I push you on in the past, which is, do you feel like you're writing from a particular voice, a particular place? Wow. These, this is a tough question. The voice question is very challenging. I'll defer on that for a second and just talk more about like what, how do I think about the, uh, how I prioritize or select the projects I work on. And I guess it might be a Venn diagram of sorts with three circles, personal interest, that's typically comedic, not always, but typically that's sort of like a, the thing that resonates with me, comedy, farce, absurdity, mm-hmm. my kind of perspective on life, I guess. So personal interest in the, and then the other circle would might be like, what's marketable or potentially marketable, what could have an audience. So all the, all the things that I think are personally interesting and funny or entertaining or what if, if that universe crosses over with what I think might other others might find entertaining. And then the third one might be uh, more practical. <laughs> what can I produce on a shoestring budget? This is an interesting thing too. I, I rarely write. And in fact, I'm thinking I've never written anything uh, that I couldn't produce myself if I wanted to do it. Right. I haven't produced everything I've written. Clearly I write a lot of, pilot projects or yeah, I sitcom ideas that I never, they never go anywhere, but I don't, I, I intentionally constrain uh, my creative output, I guess, because I, I think, I, I think it's highly unlikely anyone's ever going to make anything that, <laughs> that I want them to make. So ultimately if I want something to exist, I'm going to have to produce it. And that's, that's achievable. We've done that. You both, you and I have done uh, numerous iterations of, of production. And so, those are the three things, personal interest, what might be marketable yeah, and then what I could actually achieve with, you know, relatively limited budget and, and, uh, you know, calling in favors with friends and local talent, things like that. Yeah. I, those are the three buckets for me too, but I always tend to under index the marketability one. I, I don't think about that as much as I should, then that's, if you watch, go watch my movie, that'll be completely evident. <laughs> um, but um, I actually have written things that I in no way can produce whatsoever. Um, so maybe I'm actually a little bit even more in just in the circle of what personally interests me. You know, I wrote a whole feature film about Ferdinand Magellan. Did you know that? I know it's awesome. <laughs> I've portions of it. I'm like, man, of course. Yeah. You can't, now, the other thing is maybe we undersell our ability to make those things, even if they're really super ultra low budget. And it almost could be, well, it would be intentionally comical to do a movie like a period piece like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, we're different in that way for sure. Cause yeah. I, but I have, I, I have a, so my epic, I, my, I'll just give it away. Here's, here it is audience. This is it, man. You guys want to take this and run with it. Um the idea that I'm fascinated by is earth is a finite, uh, has a finite existence. If humans can live here long enough and we want to leave and we're going to, we're going to find their next planet. We actually know, by the way, the, the, the closest planet that we could Alpha Centauri. Yeah, it's X number of light years away, which is super, super far. All right. So you have to like, we're going to, we're going to gloss over some of the reality that it's difficult to get there, but let's just assume we have a ship we're going to load the ship up with people and we're going to go. It's going to be a multi-generational journey in a giant spaceship to get to the next inhabitable planet. So this is 
what, whatever the premise is that propels, propels them to do this, uh, let's not go into the details. But the idea of, I think there's enough there. Now, here's the fun part. If it takes 10 generations, let's just make that up, to get to the final destination, the first generations of this journey are super motivated. They, they opted into it, assuming they weren't like forcibly coerced into the ship. Like I think this is something where people want to be a part of this. They want to go on that ship and they want to propagate the species and they're going to be like the the founders, right? And then there's going to be a mythology that builds up about them because they'll die off over several generations. And then you have the kind of middle parts of the journey where your sole purpose is to exist, to perpetuate the things that enable that ship to continue, but you're ultimately not going to see the final destination. And then, so imagine being born into that situation, right? I think that's, I think that's where I'd start the series, right? Like on, on the fifth generation, right? Like, and then you have all these questions of what type of society and structure and organization would you need to be effective so that chaos doesn't ensue? And what type of power structural civil wars, how would relationships evolve? How many, first of all, how many people from a genetic standpoint need to be on that ship so you have sufficient uh, variation. Like I, I've thought about this as a real fascinating, it could be all sorts of fun for m- many seasons. I can never make that. So anyway, I'm not going to develop it beyond the, the idea that I just poorly articulated to you. Anyway. Well, <laughs> it's a, I think, I think it's obviously a compelling idea. <laughs> Don't laugh. Yeah. But it does raise, I, it, it made me think of a, a serious question for you, which is, do you, uh, you know, so much of what's being made today is, uh, it has a message. It's designed as social commentary and it's designed to make social change. And some of the things I've watched are, you know, I think also stunning works of art, but I think their first purpose was to change culture. Is that, I, that's never something I've thought about in my own work and and that's never been my motivation to make work before. And so I'm wondering if you feel similarly and if so, how do you, how do you find your place in a world where, where it seems that's why most people are making things or do you think I'm wrong about that? Wow. There's a lot there. So I don't know if I don't, I don't necessarily think you're wrong. Um, trying to think of some recent examples. I haven't watched the full Chernobyl series, for instance, but I've uh, started it. It's a, it's fantastic. But I think that what makes it great is it's not too preachy. And what's the best reflection of that is you can have people with varying perspectives or philosophies watch that that and kind of pull different lessons from it. Right? Is it a is it a critique of statist, uh, command and control, bureaucracy, lies to protect the, the powerful danger. Oh, wow. or that, is that, that, that is precise. I mean, like, Chernobyl is a good example. So it has a very clear thesis. You know, it has a very clear point to make. And the point is, if you lie and if you obfuscate the truth, there will be, there will be a bill to pay down the road. And that's the lesson that he takes from Chernobyl. And obviously, it has a lesson today with governments that lie and obfuscate to the people. But at the same time, Chernobyl is an amazing work of art. Everything about it is fantastic. So I think it succeeds on every level. I shouldn't talk about it since I haven't watched it in its entirety yet. But I've seen thought pieces. What I meant to say, actually, is I've seen thought pieces that sort of pick it apart in different ways. Is it a critique of current 
political climate, arguably. Uh, surely, I think that's what... Actually, I know nothing about what the artist's motive were, by the way, so I'm not going to even comment on it. But I think Chernobyl does. I think, and I think Craig, Craig Mason's intent, because I've actually listened to him talk about it, yeah. so I have a little bit more standing than you. To, I have no standing on this, so you are correct. Yeah, I, I, do, <laughs> I, I do think he was trying to say something in particular, but... You know, I've always approached the work differently, which is I'm trying to raise an argument. I'm trying to raise a question that I do not know the answer to. And and the uh, different sides of that argument are usually represented in different characters. And if all the characters involved in the argument don't have a good point, then I feel like I've, I've failed to to broach the argument in a way that's compelling for people. So that's how I approach it. And so I personally, I feel a little bit lost in a culture where I, people expect me as a creator to be, you know, coming to the table with a message like, well, you must be, I'm a straight white man. Oh, you must be trying to say something about that. No, not really. It's not interesting to me. I, I feel a little rudderless, you could say, when I when I go to make stuff or write write things nowadays. I will just confess that I'm not uh, a man of great intellectual depth. In <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, in my, as it, re- as it re- relates to what I produce as a quote unquote artist, which is a funny word to me, even. But like, I do things. I, I'm just trying to have fun, and I think yeah. uh, distract. Maybe this isn't. I don't know what it reflects upon me or what it means about the things that I make, but I don't necessarily want to be preachy or have, I don't know that I have anything important to say. You know, that's the thing. You always say, Rob, what are you trying to say in this piece? Or, and that's actually probably a, I should think more deeply about that question, but I tried that once that project muck was like this investigative journalist that went back to West Virginia and it was the, the pursuit of truth, but you know, how will he, you know, as a journalist, you know, manipulate his audience through selective editing of his interviews. And yeah. maybe, maybe the truth isn't worth sharing if the ultimate outcome was just or something. I, it didn't really ultimately land. The whole thing was a little messy in, in, in its execution. It's also all my fault, by the way. Everyone involved with that project is amazing. And it ultimately where it fell short was probably just me on the pre-production and writing side. Long story short, that was a project I really tried to think that I was going to say something important or I had something interesting, to, a question to raise about and, and journalism and fact-finding versus entertainment and ratings. But it, I wasn't really happy necessarily with how it all, um, you know, it didn't really, it didn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out the way I thought it might. So I kind of, I should go back to my roots and just be entertainment, comedy, funny well, you're, zany. As, as your personal friend let me give you some encouragement muck was very good okay. it was it was <laughs> muck was very well written it was very well cast it was very well uh, shot that was for and, sure all that's for sh- for sure thank yeah. you man i i definitely i'm not i'm not saying i didn't like it i'm just saying it was i don't know it was intense like trying to trying to challenge yourself to think about all of the oh gosh all the perspectives and well, I got one more question okay, for you. Okay, sure, Robert. ask me. And, and then let's just end on this. I Here's another thing that I feel lost on in the current culture, which is everyone is really into documenting their life as they live it. You know, the Instagram stories are just 
people shooting whatever it is they're doing at the moment. And I don't want to be too critical. I have a lot of friends that do this, but that's just not how I personally want to be living my life. And in some ways, I feel like the way to promote anything, any creative work at all, is to live that kind of life where you are documenting everything you do on a constant basis. And you are much more comfortable, I think, doing that. How do you, uh, do you, oh shoot. Cause I was, I was going to say, you know, how, how, how should I deal with that? But you, you're just like, you get out there and you do your burpees and you film it every day on Facebook. So I'm trying to understand that world too, Russell. I'm not a master of it by any stretch. I'm not an influencer. I don't have millions of followers. I struggle with the inherent value of social media in promoting creative work. I just produced, uh, again, you know, sorry to be uh, promoting a, a recent project, but I did a one-man show at the DC Fringe, I'm sorry, yeah, Capital Fringe Festival this summer. And um, the only reason I was able to attract an audience to that is because I was able to post about it and sort of get people excited about it through yeah. social media. There's no other way that I could have attracted my friends and friends of friends to come see something uh, of that, of that magnitude. So, so that's, um, that's awesome. But the process of just like, it, it does feel so narcissistic and, and vain and all these you know, sort of things were taught that aren't positive traits, you know? Yeah. So part of me just yearns to like, I read a story about a barber shop once that didn't have a Facebook page, no Instagram had never done any marketing. And the reason's completely obvious because they give people good haircuts. Then someone asked those people, where'd you get your haircut? And then they they go to get their haircut there. It's all referral from putting out a good product. And I I long sometimes to just be a barber, Rob. I just want to cut people's hair. Well, I just want to do a good job. Never promote myself whatsoever. Make sure you get the proper uh, licenses. You know that's uh, training and licenses. This is very important. <laughs> Let's not get political here. That's all right. <laughs> Sorry, anyway. I'm On our to... next podcast, yeah, over-licensing right. and how to reform our economy. Okay. But uh, no, man, this has been fun. Uh, I always enjoy ch- chatting with you and uh, hopefully we can do it again. I'm excited for your podcast, which is relatively uh, new, but I'm looking yes. forward to seeing that progress. You're an excellent uh, storyteller and interviewer and you shared very deep thoughts. I oh, thank excited. you, Rob. All right. Rob Rafferty, thank you for coming. Thanks a lot, Russell. Have a great day.